What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Ezra Fishman, VP of Growth at Wistia. Ezra started his career as an engineer developing devices to help treat diabetes and obesity at GI Dynamics. He later had a short stint as an operations manager at an investment firm that was dedicated to funding health tech startups. After completing his MBA, Ezra joined a video tech startup called Wistia as their director of marketing. And after four years, he transitioned to leading business intelligence. And today, Ezra is VP of growth at Wistia, where he's now spent over 12 years seeing the company grow from a handful of customers to over 375,000 customers and becoming one of the top VPaaS tools on the planet. Ezra, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Knack. Launching an email or landing page in your marketing automation platform shouldn't feel like assembling an airplane mid-flight with no instructions, but too often, that's exactly how it feels. Knack is like an instruction set for campaign creation, from establishing brand guardrails and streamlining your approval process to Knack's no-code drag-and-drop editor to help you build emails and landing pages. No more having to stop midway through your campaign to fix something simple. Knack lets you work with your entire team in real time and stops you having to fix things mid-flight. Check them out at knack.com, that's K-N-A-K, and tell them we sent you. So I want to start with your journey in Wistia. So as Wistia's first customer and then later on as an early team member, you've seen the company from both sides of the lens. What was your aha moment when you realized you needed to switch from being a client to actually joining the the team? And once inside, did you have a moment of revelation or a bold move that completely flipped the script on how Wistia operated or approached his business strategy? Yeah, solid questions. So yeah, the origin story, my origin story for Wistia is is an interesting one. So so Wistia's founded Chris Savage and, and Brendan Schwartz. They were actually both good friends of mine. So we were all living together in Boston when they quit their jobs and said, hey, we're going to go start a company. We don't know what it's about. We don't know what it's going to do, but we're going to start a company. And I said, I was working medical devices. I said, good luck. Godspeed. <laughs> they came back after a few months and we're like, we're going to do something with video. We don't know what it is. Or they were thinking about artists and people that need portfolio sites. And we were sitting around talking and like, and artists aren't tend to spend a ton of money. And I was working at this company and we were doing medical procedures. We were doing endoscopic procedures. Endoscopic procedures all end up with video at the end because you have the mm. endoscope that creates video. And so we were doing these procedures all over the world and mailing DVDs around the world to, to the different doctors that needed to watch the, the recordings and share their feedback. And so we were sitting around one day and I was like, hey, Brendan, could you make, could you do something here that would just make this easier? And this company will pay you money for it and real money for it tomorrow <laughs> if you can help us do, fix this. And he was like, oh yeah, that's easy. That's no problem at all. And that was how Wistia was born. Wistia kind of was born out of that, became a private video sharing and collaboration platform. GI Dynamics was customer number one. We, I brought them into the office and we had a meeting with my boss and this was another startup and they were like, hey, instead of mailing these DVDs around, what if we could just upload them and have the doctors comment on the website 
And it was like, you mean YouTube? She's like, yeah, but not on YouTube. These are surgery procedures. Maybe it'll be private. <laughs> and yeah, so that's where Wistia is born. I, you know, the company, the Wistia found some more customers kind of in that vein, you know, some medical device companies, some uh, people that were production houses that wanted to share their proofs of videos and kind of give feedback, not put it out in the wild. And kind of that was, yeah, that's how it all began. I didn't, I went to business school. It was five years before I finished business school, just had a, just went to, to get lunch with Chris and Brendan. I was like, Hey, how's Wissy doing? How have they were asking me, what are, you, what are you doing next, Ezra? And I was like, I don't know. I'm going to find something probably in the healthcare space. That's where I was interested in. And yeah, we started talking and they were like, well, we're at an interesting place now. We're like, we think we're finally getting some momentum and we can use some help on the marketing side. Would you be interested in that? And I was like, well, I don't know anything about marketing. You don't know anything about running a company. Our powers combined. This will probably <laughs> be great. And so, yeah. So then I, I joined Wistia and yeah, we made a pivot to, to focusing less on the like internals private video and more on putting video out onto your website, video embeds, tracking the performance. And that was, I would say that was the the pivotal shift in the Wistia journey was from kind of this private internal tool to use video for marketing, put it on your website, track how it's performing. And kind of shortly thereafter, obviously because I had joined, we started to grow a lot. So we started, we unlocked <laughs> kind of customer growth and got a free plan out the door kind of just started to get, you know, tons more users, tons more people on the platform. And yeah, and then the company is, you know, it's, we are not a, a VC backed firm. We're not mm -hmm. like go big or go home. It's been a, you know, slow, steady rise, but yeah, now we're lots of customers, lots of users, you know, we're a big company now. We're over 200 people. That's huge. <laughs> Such a cool story. Yeah. I feel like 200 people probably feels massive compared to the early days. So like you were an employee, what, like less than 10? Six. Yeah. Six or seven. <laughs> nice. Very cool. Such a cool story. I, yeah. I feel like I, I heard pieces of that from listening to uh, some of the different co-founders. I know they're big on like uh, other video podcasts and I checked out the, the podcast series that Wistia does as well. Such a, an amazing production ourselves on our side. We have a, a lot to learn from you guys there, but we joked before recording that you're pretty dark on on the socials and usually for our interviews we go deep on on social research and poke questions about some of the posts that, that our guests made that was a bit hard for us to do for you but on the plus side you've written a ton for wistia on their blog and there's one article i wanted to start by by poking you about i, I read through it and I, I guess it felt like prophetic in a sense you called it beyond funnel vision in the article you advocate for this idea of focusing on building an audience rather than just capturing leads way before this became the norm for many companies. I feel like some folks listening right now might just be like, yeah, well, obviously that's core to marketing. You want to build an audience. But, you know, 12 years ago, that was crazy. It was a crazy idea. Like I remember it started my career 12 years ago and this idea of like capturing leads and having gated content everywhere. That was the goal of B2B, right? So how were you able to foresee the shift in marketing focus and, and what influenced your early realization that th there was a huge importance in building an audience first before capturing leads. Yeah, for sure. And, and you talk about the shift, but there's a lot of people that are still on that other side of <laughs> yeah, the shift. True. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of marketers out there that are, you know, and, and a lot of CEOs that are asking their marketing team, you know, 
well, how many qualified leads did you get this month? And, you know, forget this audience stuff. That's BS. So, so yeah, I mean, for us, it was honestly, it was seeing what was working for us at Wistia. And what we were finding was, yeah, we were making content, you know, in the early days, making a lot of content about how to create video, how to use video kind of more effectively, how to create video on a budget. And we were getting lots of engagement, lots of people that were, you know, commenting on blog posts, commenting on Twitter, really just kind of engaging with the brand. And then they were telling other people about the product and it was kind of spreading and we could see, you know, it, it's hard to measure that behavior, but we could see when we put out content, we could actually see the number of website visits and the number of signups go up in the days following that. We couldn't say, hey, George over there shared it, um, but we could see that behavior happening. And then when we started to kind of lock things down and say, hey, you have to put in your email to get access to anything, just the number of people engaging with our content went way down. And, you know, the trade-off just started to become pretty obvious to us of, hey, just get more people engaging and engaging more deeply. And, and it put pressure on, you know, well, the content has to be good because you have to, it's not about getting like people to download one thing and then pestering them with sales. It's like, you got to create good stuff that then they want to consume another thing and then another thing. And they want to opt into that and then start telling other people about the company. And so it became clear it was, you know, a quality game more than a quantity game. And that was like another thing that was like, I think controversial at that time. I mean, I remember having conversations with the marketing team being like, hey, it's not about putting out 30 more blog posts this month. You know, there, there's an element to that. There's an element to, you know, ranking in search and being relevant, but quality's quality is just much more important. And yeah, that's how we started to just picture our audience as like this behemoth thing that we were growing and we were really, you know, trying to get fans and that, that really started to shift how we approached marketing. I feel like there's a lesson here. Good marketing metrics can make good marketers do really bad things at times. And your own career growth at Wistia, I've actually find very fascinating from director of marketing to director and VP of business intelligence to your current role of VP of growth. So you understand the data picture inside and out, no doubt. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb here and saying that you probably put a lot of stock in data, but just based on that last question and response, it feels like you also put a lot of stock into the qualitative elements of marketing and building quality, you know, engagements with your audience, not just measuring everything to grow. So maybe walk us a little bit about how your tenure in business intelligence helped you prepare you for your role as VP of growth at Wistia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like to say that have have had different roles worn different kind of responsibilities worn different hats but also it's like a lot of the same stuff you know marketing bi growth there's there's a, there's a lot of overlap in those circles of kind of you know how are you attracting people how are you converting them how are you using data to make better decisions and yeah i think i joke about kind of my i'm a data guy i i like data i'm comfortable with data i like using data but I'm also a data skeptic. I, I've seen all the ways that data has failed. Hmm. And, you know, I, you know, data is not the holy grail for me. It is a useful tool. It is a useful input to decisions. But people have to make decisions. And, you know, I think at times, at times people fall in love with data and, you know, say, oh, data's 
the data is going to tell me what to do. And, you know, I think that's bullshit. You're not going to be very successful. I think if that is your mantra, talk a little bit about like data informed decision making rather than data driven. And yeah, I think data can tell you a lot of things, but it also is not going to reveal the answers. We, you know, we talk a lot about, I think there's a tendency when you've got a problem to say, well, let's go collect all of the data and let's go on a, you know, collect all the books for this research project, collect all the data and see what the answer is. That, my experience is like, tends to be wild goose chases. You're just kind of collecting, looking for patterns. You can convince yourself of almost any patterns. Well, I am a much bigger believer in taking action or having a hypothesis and saying, hey, does the data prove or disprove that? So I believe that our best customers spend, you know, only a little bit of time on the website because I've talked to a handful of customers and they're not interested in doing a bunch of research online. They want to get right into the product and start using it. So I've got some intuition about that. I have this belief. I can go use data now to test that and to say, hey, is that right? Is that wrong? Which sets of customers is that right? It's never going to be right or wrong completely. There's always going to be like a little bit of bull, but you can go use that and test and like test that hypothesis. You can, you know, put some out in the world and test that hypothesis. And that's how I see kind of the most effective use of data is when you have a specific question that you're trying to answer, a specific thing that you can kind of say yes or no, or kind of in which case is this true? And kind of at the, at the root of your question is, you know, mm-hmm. can you misuse data? And yes, I think that is a, honestly more common than mm. using data, I think effectively is mm. misusing data. It's pretty fascinating. I was employee number eight at a business intelligence and dashboarding company and grew up very much like the messaging around data driven and all of this. So actually what you're saying really resonates quite a bit from my own kind of first, my real world experience working with customers who do deploy dashboard and BI in their company. And probably my number one takeaway from my tenure in that company was that Unlocking the value of data is really about that human connection. You can build all the cool dashboards and reports and analytics at the end of the day. It's really about being able to use this information and communicate it to the humans who are making decisions. Talk to us, and you kind of touched on this, but I'd like you to talk us through a little bit of the soft skills required to work with data and have your organization be data informed. Because I don't think you're saying, don't look at the data, you're saying, make really good decisions, but use the data to back it up. Just don't rely extensively on it. So maybe you can talk us a little bit about the soft skills around this. Yeah, I think there's a ton of, there's a ton of soft skills. You know, I, it starts at the very beginning with just like trying to understand what people are hoping to learn, what they're trying to get from the data all the time. This is, I think, very similar to like the classic, like, product manager roles of, well, customers are saying this thing, but what are they really saying? (laughs) And so the same thing applies with data, with BI, with kind of market data, you know, the ask from the internal customer is, you know, can I have a dashboard that tells me this and this, and it's like a long list of things, but the real challenge is, well, what are you actually trying to find out? What is the question that you have? What are you looking for? input on. And then the answer to that is often related, similar to what you asked for, but not exactly what you asked for. 
or, you know, hey, we can get you the data, but it's not going to tell you exactly what you're going to look for, what you're expecting. And I would say like a classic example of this is we, we're often looking at distributions of behavior at Wistia. And so how long does it take people to purchase? How long does it take them to upload their first video? What, how many videos do people upload when they start uploading video and kind of questions like this. And what we found is I can tell you what the distribution is going to look like without doing any work is, mm. you know, there's this same pattern of kind of exponential decay where most people are going to do nothing at all. A few people are going to upload one video, a few other people are going to upload two, three, and then on down the line. And doesn't matter what the behavior or the question is, that's what the distribution is going to look like. So if you just want the distribution, I can already tell you what it's going to be. <laughs> There's like another question behind that. That is, what are the, what are the outliers doing? What is it, what does it take for people to be motivated enough to upload two or three videos? And those things, the data is not going to necessarily tell you, or the mm -hmm. simple distributions not going to tell you. Or the other fun one that everyone loves to ask is, what's that magic number? You know, the, that magic number, how many pages of the website does someone have to look at before they're going to convert? How many uploads do they have to do before they're going to become a long-term customer? Blah, blah. Also BS. <laughs> there is no magic number. There's going to be a distribution. The magic number is for ease of communication, for telling the story internally so that we can all remember it. Mm -hmm. That's what the magic number is. The people that upload two videos, people that upload three are going to be better than those. People that upload four are going to be better than those. Five is going to be better than those. We make up these stories of kind of magic numbers, magic things to give ourselves something to run after and to make the world simpler. And again, it's not, you know, it's not to say that there, in, there aren't at times like differences in the data where like the difference between inviting five friends and six friends is meaningful and there's something there. Sometimes there is, but it's never, it's never a black and white that's, well, five is great. Six is meaningless. Four is meaningless. That is not, I've never seen that to be the case. <laughs> yeah, definitely not black or white. It makes me think of some of the conversations we've had around PQLs, like product qualified leads with this whole shift with like product led marketing. Everyone needs to drive to this number. Like I forget what the one was for Slack, number of team members invited. It's our North Star. We get to that number and we're good for that person. Like it's obvious a, a distribution. So I, I like how you, you broke that down and, and totally agree. I, I want to ask you like what, what other growth metrics are, are kind of top of mind for you when I ask you, what are the most misunderstood growth metrics? And you've written a lot about LTV to CAC and, and payback period. Just curious your take there. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many there. We could have our own podcast episode about that. Yeah. I think the, well, if you zoom out a ton, this is like the, again, the fun magic numbers, like this rule of 40 business metric of, hey, you know, what is your growth rate? What is your EBITDA? And there's something magical about 40. That's not true. There isn't anything magical about 40. It's a range. It's a distribution. It's, you know, a nice round number, which again is helpful. I'm not, not disputing that like 
a sense of like gray and ranges is like hard to understand. But I, I think if we acknowledge that part of it and say, oh, here's how we're simplifying it, then I think we're being more intellectually honest and it's easier to know that like 38 is also just as good as 40. <laughs> there, there's nothing magical. Yeah, I think uh, like LTV, CAC are like nice ratios, nice, again, this like magical, you know, three to one ratio is not really magical. About three to one CAC is like really messy. Every single organization I've seen measures it differently. What things do they throw <laughs> in the bucket versus what things don't they? You know, I think that is really hard and challenging. A thing that we've used, which I think is like a little bit unusual, we are, you know, we are a SaaS business and we talk a lot about kind of monthly active users, weekly active users and and those things. And I think that is most, more typically, you know, something with an ad-based business where they are thinking about, you know, active users on the platform matter a ton because you're feeling it via advertising. We've started to talk more and more in the last couple of years about kind of some of those metrics as just basically a, a measure of like how valuable is the platform, how sticky is the platform. And I think that's probably a, an underutilized measure. <laughs> I get NPS. I think NPS is a very crude measure of what it is. We prefer to look at, hey, are people actually in the platform using it and use that as like a more consistent measure of are they finding value? Kind of what does what their action say mm-hmm. in terms of, of yeah, where they're seeing value? So when Phil was talking about Slack and like the number of uh, messages sent as being kind of a true north growth measure for product-led marketing or product-led growth, like I can tell that there's maybe a little bit of an uh, opinion that you may have. I want to root into that. Uh, and I guess my question here is, how would you approach something like product-led marketing from like a product measurement standpoint? Like a lot of people like to have that true north to be able to drive to, hey, I'll set my automation up to drive this action. And it's really clean. It's really easy story to tell internally. But as you've outlined here, the real growth story doesn't happen through a bunch of metrics. It happens through people doing things in your product and engaging with your brand and your product. So Maybe walk us through how you would set up like a, a true north metric for, for a product like obviously Wistia or Slack. Yeah, I think there's just like some amount of acknowledging the, the imperfections of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we use OKRs here at Wistia, a fair amount, not novel. But we, when we're doing that, we talk a lot about the objective being the thing that we're trying to do. So, you know, we want to make Wistia the most beloved video software company. We want to make we want to make a real dent in the market share over this year, things like that. And then talk about the key results as being often imperfect measures of that thing that we're after and saying, we're going to look at them a lot. We're going to measure our performance based on that, but they're also imperfect. And so there's you know, they're like, we don't want to fully put the blinders on and say, hey, just go optimize for this one thing. Kind of everyone in this business is adults. They, we can understand mm-hmm. nuance and complication and say, hey, here's what we're going after as an objective. Think about your work and whether it serves that objective. 
how we're going to measure progress is kind of these numbers. And honestly, also saying, trying to be upfront about, hey, how imperfect are some of these? You know, some or sometimes if we're trying to grow the business, we can invest more. Revenue is a pretty darn good measure of that. And then on the same time, we have brand OKRs and we're trying to increase the perception of Wistia or the, the amount of word of mouth and, you know, organic search volume for the Wistia term is not a perfect measure for that, but it's okay. <laughs> and just acknowledging like when each is the case, I think is, is pretty critical. So I like true North things like we, simplicity is a big, is a value here at Wistia. I think it is like helpful to have some simplicity and kind of things that you're focused on. The one thing that we talk about is like on that front is simplicity, but not papering over uh, a thing that we're like actually trying to balance. So we as a business are often talking about, we're an independent business. We're, we're talking about, hey, like the growth in customer number in market share is very important to us, but also revenue and like making growing a sustainable business is very important to us. And at time we've said, well, for simplicity, we're going to pick one of those things and say, that's what our focus is. And, you know, having one focus is nice. But this year we were like, that's not true. We're actually trying to balance these two things. And so let's be honest with ourselves and be honest mm -hmm. with the company and say, hey, these are the two things that we're trying, trying to keep in balance. And we're prioritizing this one over this one. But that's how we're thinking about it. And I think there's something to be said for, yeah, I'm diverging from your question a bit, but like there's, there's value in simplification. There's also downsides of oversimplifying <laughs> yeah. to the point where you're not really representing kind of what the leaders of the company are thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. And then you're, so <laughs> when it gets to that point, we say, well, let's say what we're thinking <laughs> instead of trying to oversimplify and get to this nice, beautiful North Star metric. One number, there's so many like metrics that are leading indicators to that number and you're devaluing the work that maybe another team is doing that doesn't directly impact that number. So yeah, OKRs, North Star metrics, there's a bunch of different ways of, of doing it, but I like the, the transparency approach that you're you're pulling out there as an independent business. I think that's a super important. Have, having been in BI, I guess one question I have for you is, how big was the BI team when you like, quote unquote, left marketing, but still were kind of marketing and, and went over into BI? How big was that team? How closely were you working with the data team? I, I think of my startup experience 12 years ago and there, there were no engineers that worked on data. Marketers were stuck learning APIs and SQL scripts and trying to figure out how to get data into the tools that we care about. But I'm curious to ask you, how was that evolution of the data team at Wistia and, and what role did you play in that? Yeah, exactly. So so there was no data team. That that was kind of my transition from marketing to BI was to start the data team. So it was a, okay. a data team of me as we started. <laughs> and then we grew that to a team of three. There's three of us and we often had an intern. And that was like the right size, just, you know, Wistie was probably 50, 75 people. And so, yeah, so, so we started off, yeah, just really looking at where the biggest priorities were in, in the business in terms of like where we were flying blind 
the you know the senior team obviously got like a lot of attention at the outset and then quickly went towards like marketing because marketing was yeah yeah didn't have a lot of visibility had a lot of disparate systems a lot of things that just kind of needed to be wrangled and, and simplified so yeah started out as a kind of team of one it was you know you know started out very scrappy i was writing sql putting it into spreadsheets sharing google sheets with people and then as we hired kind of the second and third person we kind of built out our bi infrastructure built out the the systems and tools to actually scale it and yeah that that's the the evolution of the team very cool Talk to us about that tech stack that, that activates the data for marketing and growth and how that's evolved over time. I, I was looking at uh, some of the code on this site and I can see some Fivetran stuff going into the warehouse. We're big fans of Census, obviously sponsored the show, and then that's pushing data into your marketing automation tools. But yeah, curious about that journey on the tech stack side. Yeah, yeah, we were very, we were pretty early on the Fivetran side so we you know we quickly went to a centralized data warehouse so have kind of redshift on the back end quickly went to you know in the early days of forming that bi team adopting fivetran to just do the etl just get all the data from all of our different systems into one place and then through mode analytics on top of that so that was kind of the base of our bi infrastructure probably for the first three or four years just kind of throw get everything into a data warehouse throw a BI tool on top of it, be able to create dashboards, single source of truth, be able to look at reporting, and that kind of served us well for a while. And then you inevitably run into the next set of challenges where it's, well, I want that same data in all the other tools. <laughs> and yeah, it took us a little while to find census, but then found census and said, okay, well, here's the missing ingredient here, which is now take all that stuff that we are that the BI team owns and has organized in this data warehouse has put kind of rules on top of that. So big shout out to DBT. We're early, early adopters of DBT, big fans of the platform and the team there, which just for, for folks that don't aren't in the data world, it's basically just a, a, a semantic layer, a way of kind of putting your business rules on the data. And so it helps you kind of organize your data, organize the, the different tables in a way that's kind of much more, much easier to then consume kind of as an analytics platform or in other tools. And so, so yeah, combining that and then using census to then take all of that data that's kind of BI has kind of organized and kind of put their stamp of approval on and then send that out back into the tools. So back into HubSpot, back into Salesforce. And that, that continues to be our kind of our stack up today and very cool works pretty well this episode is also brought to you by our friends at census census is a data activation platform loved by marketing teams at sonos canvas crocs notion and more as a customer i've experienced the magic of census firsthand their no code audience hub and reverse etl enable me to use our cloud data warehouse to power growth and create highly personalized customer journeys in all of my marketing platforms like iterable and google ads if you like the Humans of MarTech podcast graphics and you want your very own image, we're doing a monthly raffle for a personalized t-shirt designed by us. Enter to win at getcensus.com slash humans. Awesome. I appreciate the detail there. It's not totally surprising, but I guess like what I find interesting is that 
you almost went down the Redshift data warehouse centralized road pretty early on. I feel like a lot of companies, even back in the day, like a decade ago, were still on the train of debating what is that source of truth? Like, where are we going to put all that data? And there was debates about the CRM being the source of truth or the marketing automation platform. And then you're connecting mode or your BI tool through individual APIs, through all of the third-party tools that you're using. But you guys kind of like were ahead of the curve there and, and foreseen this idea of having the centralized data warehouse and, and Redshift kind of from the, the ground up. So I guess that, that saved you a lot of time several years down the road. But yeah, curious if you can share any details on, on, on that decision pretty early on. Yeah, no, we were very happy about that decision. Kind of looking <laughs> back, I think one of the key drivers for us was we realized that we wanted to just to own all the data. And so we had, we had looked at kind of other ways to approach it and realized that we were going to get potentially stuck in other tools and either kind of from like a from a pure just like pricing perspective being like hey well you know our database are this is this size today and it could be 10x in the future and we want to have flexibility or just like having the ability to move data around do exactly what we want to do with it was like a priority for us early on and so that's that is kind of that drove our decision to kind of have this central data warehouse that we had a lot more control of, hey, we can see exactly what the data is. We can move it around exactly how we want. We're not held captive by other tools or platforms or by other schemas. You know, so that was a big factor kind of in in our early choices. And then, yeah, we, we asked around a few folks kind of what their advice is for mm -hmm. building this stuff out. And then we've since, both in the BI role and in growth, like to talk to other teams, just be like, hey, what are you doing? What does your tech stack look like? What is What are you struggling with? And that was one that we found very consistently. We were like, oh, we're so glad we're not in their shoes. <laughs> and so I continue to do that as, again, the head of the growth team, try to get our growth team talking to other one other teams. If nothing else, just to commiserate and realize that like the same shit that you're struggling with, everyone is struggling <laughs> with. Nobody has figured this out. Other people have worse situations, worse yeah. setups, you know, there's conflict with sales and marketing. And it's like, yeah, that's not unique that everyone faces that. So that's been good. It becomes a big therapy session. <laughs> exactly. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask some questions around growth marketing. So like when I was coming up in marketing in the early 2010s, growth hacking and growth marketing were so new. I remember everybody was like so in vogue of, you know, all this quick shit that you could do to get your first hundred customers or thousand customers. But since then, we've seen like the product-led movement come out where I think there's a much more mature approach to growth teams. And, you know, we're seeing this as like a multifaceted discipline like yourself, like you're integrating business intelligence and data along with your MarTech stack uh, to achieve growth. And I'm sure also working with other folks within your organization. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what does growth look like at Wistia with a, I say, a more mature organization with more customers and you know, thinking about market share problems and how does that contrast necessarily to even a smaller startup in that early growth stage? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've always hated the growth hacking word. <laughs> what, what are we talking about? But yes, I, so, so I always prefer Scrappy over that. And I think there's plenty of room for Scrappy approaches, Scrappy tactics. Yeah, we are, you know, we are 
you know, more mature, you know, we've been around for a while. We, you know, have solid customer base, solid revenue. And so I think we are at the place where like we talk about growth as like a portfolio approach where we are doing some amount of optimization and then some amount of kind of total exploration, big bets. And so I think, you know, that is the right call for where we are at, you know, that there's always room for optimization and there's only so much upside to optimization. And so we are, you know, you know, looking at the, the journey of the website, looking at the purchase journey and looking at, you know, Hey, how can we get a little bit more out of that? But also kind of what are the big opportunities that could be step changes for us in terms of, you know, acquiring a ton more customers, acquiring a ton more bigger businesses, things like that. And so I think, yeah, I think that's where kind of some of the more mature kind of growth comes from. I think in the early stages, there's a version where it's, you're so scrappy that you are literally, yeah, just trying to get the first few customers in the door, the first 20. We talked a lot about, don't worry about how this thing scales. It's, oh, it's easy to get caught up in, well, we could do this now, but what's going to happen once we you know, get the first 20. It's like, okay, we'll get the first 20 and then we'll worry about that problem. Yeah. So I definitely would advocate that. But I believe in that generally as, as an approach. And then, yeah, there's, we do things like pretty cross-functionally. We have a more mature like product design engineering or more mature marketing org. Um, it is kind of more important though, not critical that all of those things stay in sync. Uh, again, we're only 200 people. We're not that big. But yeah, we make kind of make those efforts uh, to make sure that we're like telling a consistent story, have a consistent brand voice. There's a little bit more of the coordination side. In a smaller company, this coordination is just not as important. It's just not, there's not as, there's not as many people to coordinate across. And, mm. you know, you're starting with, with nothing. And so don't go crazy on that front. I haven't been at Wistia for as long as you have. I'm sure on the growth side, there's been a wealth of memorable experiments and, and tests that you've ran. I'd love to hear maybe some of the successes that, that come to mind right away, but also the failures or, or maybe like some of the surprising outcomes. Yeah, the failures are more interesting. <sighs> there's, we did a, we did an experiment we, so, so as a video platform, we have this, I guess it's not that new now, but at the time we were introducing it, we were, we were going to charge for bandwidth and we realized that this is a weird thing. Like how many gigabytes are consumed by video customers will have no intuition about how much, how many gigabytes mm -hmm. they'll use or what they'll use or anything like that. And so kind of, we knew that we, we thought about different ways to present that we, yeah, we kind of played with the calculator to calculate it and then, you know, tried to translate it in the number of views per month and, and do all these things. And then we eventually ran a test. We had a, I guess we had it and we had it just like not very prominent on the site of, you know, there's some limits, but they're kind of barriers that weren't very prominent. And we were getting questions kind of in support about, hey, what is this or compliance? So we said, okay, we're going to, we're going to be like very customer centric. We're going to be as transparent as possible. So then we, we made the, the bandwidth 
much bigger thing on the website. We put in this calculator. Um, we tried to explain as much as we possibly could about how bandwidth works, what you would get charged for it. And the number of questions went through the roof. The conversion rates went way, way down. Um, and it was just a disaster. And we were so sure. We were like, we all were like looking at this and we're like, oh, we got this awesome calculator. We got like all this Q&A. This is like good on us. We're like doing so right by the customer. And it just led to more confusion, more questions. And went back and just buried it and raised some of the limits and said, hey, we're going to try to like make this not be a thing that you have to worry about very much. But yeah, really did not go as we expected at all. We've talked a little bit about like the difference between data informed versus data driven. And I think some of our listeners are probably feeling the way I feel a little bit of a relief to hear somebody talk about data this way, right? Using data to inform your decisions, but not necessarily always being led by the nose. When you're talking about setting up these these tests and A-B testing, how do you approach it at Wistia to, to test your bets in market? What does the, the test, learn, experiment process kind of look like on your team? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think step one, the step one is the most important, which is can we actually run this as an experiment, an A-B test? And like mm. everyone skips that step and that's the single most important right. step there is. If you have... 20 visitors a month to a page, you cannot run an A-B test for this. You just can't. So forget it. Make a call. Decide what's best. Run with it. And so there's a lot of parts of our website, a lot of parts of our flows. We cannot run A-B tests in any timely manner to get information. And so we don't. And then there's the homepage. Then there's some of the sign-up pages. And we happen to have a, a good amount of volume on our website. And so, so we can run some A-B tests and we do, and we still try to test bigger items and start with, you know, a strong hypothesis that, you know, Hey, we think people don't care about this part of the platform. We think, you know, they are really coming with kind of several different problems in mind versus one clear problem in mind. And then we kind of design a test and run that. And, you know, I think that that first step is critical. Having a clear hypothesis and like saying kind of what you think is very important. The other important thing is for us, we also use, we use some A-B tests when we think the differences might be just like pretty hard to measure. And so when we think, when we're not sure about kind of the size of the impact or the scale of the impact, we may run an A-B test and say, we're going to run it for two weeks. We're not worried about statistical significance. We're not worried about those things. We just want to use this as a way to have a control. And so I've actually, we've actually started to talk about that more as a business, which I think is a helpful framing. Instead of talking about A-B tests, as a framing, talk more about having control groups. Hmm. And so if we're going to make changes or do things, can we do it with a control group and measure the impact? Because that's what we're doing the whole time, right? Is we're trying to make changes to the website, the product, and we're trying to have an impact. And all we're doing is saying, hey, is there a way we can take a control group and show what impact we're having? And I think that is like a healthier way to think about it healthier way to say, hey, yeah, we don't have enough concurrent traffic. 
that we're going to do that, but we're going to use the past three months as our control group. Mm -hmm. And it's imperfect, but that's what we're doing. That's what we're able to do. And yeah, I think that has generally been our kind of approach to A-B testing. It's, again, it's another tool um, that is at our disposal. It is not like it's a magical answer that (laughs) solves all of our problems. Yeah, love the the philosophy there. I guess the the takeaway is not everything needs to be a test, especially not when you have 20 viewers on, on that landing page. And you should always start with that question of do we can we even run this as as an A-B test before you go down the rabbit hole of putting together your hypothesis and deciding what the minimal detectable effect is going to be. So yeah, great advice, Ezra. I feel like there's so many threads I would want to double down on and pull from your brain and learn more from you. But uh, yeah, the, this has flown by. We asked this question to all of our guests right at the end. You're a VP of marketing, a board advisor, a dog dad, a ski aficionado. You're also a Boston sports maniac. One question we asked all of our guests, like I said, how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question for me. It's figuring out what excites me and, and optimizing for that. Again, you, I think it's, it is early, it's easy early in the career to be like, Hey, this is all about like, how do I progress in my career? And that's kind of what you're optimizing for. Like, how do I get up to the next level and the next level and the next level? And I think at some point realizing that, you know, that, that may be important. That's an important element. But what else drives you? And for me, that thing's different for everyone. For me, it's all about kind of learning new things and kind of, yeah, getting new knowledge, getting tested in new ways. And so that has been kind of the key to me. Thinking about my career and thinking about what I do next in my job and is, hey, is what I'm doing interesting? Am I learning a bunch? And if that's true, I'm going to keep doing it. If it's not true... Maybe I need a new role within this company. Maybe I need a new role entirely. But just to, I just go back to that question and kind of ask myself that, you know, because then I'm, there's like that intrinsic motivation for doing my work and then finding balance outside of it where, you know, work isn't, work isn't the only thing. It's important to me, but spending time with my family, spending time skiing, also very important. And I prioritize those things too. And that's obviously pretty critical for me. Awesome. Great answer. Simple question, but very powerful question to make sure you're finding that that value in what you're doing. Ezra, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I think a lot of folks like me hopefully got a, a ton of value out of this. We'll link to all the stuff that Wistia is doing. I feel like you guys are coming out with new content, new video production series all the time. So thank you again for your time, Ezra. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. This episode was brought to you by Iterable. Where will you be on April 30th, 2024? AI and creativity are colliding and Iterable's signature Activate Summit is the place to be. The automation game is changing and you've got an opportunity to be a key player. Are you ready? Not just should you attend the conference, but you actually have an opportunity to win a full VIP experience. Iterable is giving away a grand prize package that'll whisk you away to San Jose for the summit and take care of everything in style. We're talking a full pass to activate summit. That's a thousand dollars worth of learning, networking, and inspiration with hundreds of marketing's brightest minds. 
a swanky VIP dinner to mingle with fellow attendees and speakers, a luxurious three-night stay at Signia by Hilton San Jose, picture plush comfort and stunning views just steps away from all the action, and also a round-trip airfare within the US to leave all the logistics to iterable, just focus on packing for your excitement. Entering is super easy, just head over to iterable.com activate before April 2nd and register for either in-person or the virtual experience, which is free. And that's it, you're officially in the running. So don't miss out on this chance to win a trip that'll boost your career and ignite your marketing mojo. Head over to iterable.com activate and enter today. If you're still listening, first of all, thank you for being here and as a reward for your attention, I'll leave you with my favorite newsletter. Check out the Marketing Operations Leader newsletter written by friend of the show, Daryl Alfonso. You might know him. We interviewed him in episode 101 of the podcast. Daryl's led marketing ops at big names like Indeed and AWS, and his newsletter is packed with practical advice and frameworks and new ideas to help you manage your marketing function. He launched it at the end of last year and he's already collected over a thousand subscribers. So go to substack.com and search for marketing operations leader and you'll thank us later. Our second favorite newsletter is the Humans of Martech newsletter, of course. Uh, we'll be experimenting more with this in the future, but for now, think of this as the best way to get notified when a new episode drops and you'll get a breakdown of the summary of the episode and all the key takeaways. So you know if this is an episode you want to listen, check out, maybe you want to watch it on YouTube or just read the GPT-powered summary blog post. It's the best way to support the show and help us attract more sponsors. So if you like the show, you like our content, you can support us by signing up at humansandmartech.com. Again, really appreciate you and we'll catch you next week.